This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, awesome. Okay, we are starting here. So first of all, thank you all for joining us. As always, we want to thank Kami and Chani for the behind-the-scenes work. Um, I do want to say that all of you who are joining us live on Zoom, so after... Is that yours? That's reverberating? Okay. So after we usually do these um, classes, so many of you don't realize that there's a studio audience here, like thousands of people. Not thousands. Okay. It's like a few. So what we do is, is that after we um, finish the class, we turn off the Zoom and we upload it to Torah anytime, but we sit around here and we schmooze. So tonight we decided that maybe we would open the Zoom for anybody who wants to listen in. And if you want to participate or say anything, we'll allow you to unmute yourself. But it won't be on tour anytime, so, this, so you don't have to be concerned about, you know, anything like that. I'm not sure if we should make it conditional on you showing yourself during the class itself. We'll have to negotiate later, maybe. But we definitely would like, if you're able to show yourselves, um, it would definitely be helpful. This way we could have some sort of interaction. Um, so if you're able to do that, definitely do that. All right, so we'll give a little value added to those of you who are joining us on uh, on Zoom, this so you'll be able to participate afterwards, okay? But don't unmute yourself until um, after the class, if you don't mind, all right? So let's get started here with, I think this is the eighth class, yeah, of our Mido series. Um, until this point, we discussed Menucha Sanafesh, we discussed patience, and we discussed Seder. And we said that Seder was not just orderliness, but when we finished the class last time and we had this little roundtable discussion, we, <laughs> excuse me, we came out that there was more to Seder than simply being organized. We said that Seder is essentially taking everything in your life and sort of weighing it as to whether it belongs in your life and how much time it needs to stay in your life. And then knowing at which point, for example, one thing ends and then another thing begins. And if you have your life structured in that way, then A, you have Seder, you have orderliness. And number two is you, you actually will live in the moment for the things that you're, that you're doing, and that will add value to the, the thing that you're doing. So if you're sitting there and you're doing something, it will add value. So what we discussed after the class last time was that in a certain sense, Seder, I guess inadvertently maybe, it actually lends itself to the idea of mindfulness. So if you're not familiar with mindfulness, a little, there's like the weird mindfulness, and then there's like the, I think the Torah perspective on mindfulness. So tonight I want to talk about three topics sort of that relate in a way to Seder, to orderliness. And we'll start with this one idea. So if a person stops for a minute, whatever they're doing, and they say to themselves, what, what am I engaged in right now? So I'll give you an example. I have a chavrusa, and we sit at night, and we're learning. So a lot of times when you're learning, you're distracted. You have a lot of things. You have children on the side that are, like, schmoozing and whispering. Right? There's things that could throw you off, and, and you could just maybe not be 100% focused on, like, what you're supposed to be focused on. So when you're learning, you try to turn off your phone and, like, take the children out of the room so that they're, you know, you're familiar with that little spiel of the guy who's like, like, and the children need to know. So... You're sitting there and you're trying not to be distracted and you're learning something and you're learning something. Okay, guys, you really do need to... Okay, so we're learning lessons here as we're uh, learning lessons here. So 
you're you're sitting there and you're learning and you have your phone you try to silence it you try to just focus on what you're learning so last night we're sitting and we're learning a rambam and classically like you maybe you don't but if you would you sit down and you'd read the rambam and you say okay good. the rambam says this and we read the rambam and it's based on Rabbi Yisroch Berkowitz's sheets. And our Berkowitz's sheets, the way it works is there's a marmok, and it tells you, learn this, and you learn it, and you think to yourself, what did I just learn? So you say, I just learned A, B, C. Fine. Then you read what he, how he learned it. So we go ahead and we say, okay, how, what did you learn? He reads it, and we read what he wrote, and it was totally different than the way we read the Ramam. So we're like, that's odd. We just read the Ramam. Ram didn't say what Rabbi Berkowitz said the Ramam said. So we're like, let's do this again. So we go through the Ramam again and we like read it again and we're like, still don't see it. So we're like, okay, let's put the Ramam aside. Let's see what he's saying the Ramam says. So we understand now what the Ramam said. And we're like, okay, the way Rabbi Berkowitz understands the Ramam is this. Now let's go back a third time and learn this Ramam. And it's a long Ramam. So we like learn through the whole thing again. And we're like, oh, okay, maybe I could start to see what he's saying here. And then we went through it a fourth time and a fifth time and a sixth time. We literally went over over a dozen times until at the end, end, and we're like, oh, that's what the Rambam is saying. What am I saying is that the weird mindfulness is where you say to yourself, I'm sitting in my chair, and you say to yourself, do I feel myself sitting on the chair? Do I feel my feet touching the floor? Do I feel my socks? That's mindfulness. Like you're living in the moment, and you're very mindful of what's going on. The idea of Seder is not where you become weird and you start saying, do I feel my son? It's where you say to yourself, when I'm doing something, I'm doing it right. I'm doing it wholeheartedly. I'm doing it with my full attention. And what happens is, is that today, to be honest with you, it was hard for me to get this Rambam out of my brain. Because it wasn't just a Rambam that like, I read and it went through one ear and out the other ear. It was something that it, it became a part of me. It was like an emotional connection to this because we fought through this Rambam and we delved through this Rambam and it became a part of me. To a very large degree, what I believe, and I'm not here to say this generation, I'm too young to like, you know, be talking about this generation, but many, many people go through their lives with ideas. And I'll give you a small snippet of what I'm saying. If you ask the average wife, for example, do you respect your husband? The average wife will say, yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I respect the guy. Yeah. But do you feel the respect in your bones where you're like completely wholeheartedly machnia yourself to what he says, to what he does, to his decisions? Does he feel when, when you look at him that you look at him with admiration? Have you like saturated your bones with the Rambam? Have you saturated your bones with the feelings that you need to feel? And for many people, it's like reading through something and then you move on with your life as opposed to like, living it and feeling it and, and, and literally becoming like tainted with it. Seder is, is doing things wholeheartedly because it has a place in your life and then it becomes a part of your life. That is Seder. It's not as easy as we thought it was originally. We thought it was just like be organized, have a calendar. It's not. It's that the things that you do, you do 150% and it becomes a part of you. That's one part of the idea. There's a second part of this idea and it's based on a very famous story that we all know 
but I want to sort of tell you the story layer by layer. So you're all familiar with, this, with the story that Hashem comes to Avram, and he says very famous words. It's a very famous passage. Hashem says, Hashem says, I'm going to destroy Sodom. Am I going to hide from Avram what I'm going to do? I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to inform Avram that I'm destroying Sodom. What does Avram do? Avram gets all panicky. He's like, no, Hashem. I don't want to say that. I should take you back those words. Avram didn't get panicked. Okay? He says to Hashem, let me talk to you about it. And he says, Hashem, if there are 50 tzaddikim, Hashem says, no, if there are 45 tzaddikim, and they go through pasuk after pasuk after pasuk until Hashem says, if I would find 10, 10 tzaddikim, then I wouldn't destroy it. And then, but I don't have 10 tzaddikim, so therefore I'm going to destroy it, right? What was the purpose of that entire exercise? What was the purpose? Hashem comes to him and he says, I'd like to inform you I'm going to destroy five cities of people. Thousands of people, tens of thousands of people. Hashem's like, Avram's like, no, no, please don't. And then Hashem's like, Hashem's not like, oh, okay, thank you for davening. Now, because you davened, Hashem's like, no, I don't care if you're davening. I'm going to destroy it anyways. He says, but what about 45? What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? No, 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 no. Answer is no, I'm destroying it. What's the purpose? So the Rashi says a very interesting thing. When Hashem says that he's going to tell Avraham about the destruction. Rashi says, how could I not tell Avraham who's going who's gonna, to like feel it? If I'm going to destroy the children, I'm not going to tell the father. Like Avraham is going to be affected by what's going on over here. So therefore, I have to inform him that I'm going to destroy it. What makes the question even stronger. So Hashem is like, okay, I'm going to destroy... I'm going to destroy Saddam. And Avram says, why are you telling me? Because I'm going to be affected? Okay, please don't. Really, it's going to bother me. Hashem says, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to do it anyways. It's like telling your kids, like, you see that big Lego tower that you built? I'm about to destroy it. They're like, please don't. You're like, no, I'm going to do it anyways. They're like, but uh, if I clean up my room and I do my homework, will you destroy it? Yeah, I'm going to still destroy it. And what if I take out the garbage for a month? Uh, No, I'm still going to destroy it. Like, you're, you're just prolonging the torture. You're, by finally, your kid's like, okay, why did you tell me? Why didn't you just go destroy it? It would have been much easier for me. And Chazal say that there was actually a lot that came out of this story and four particular points that I want to talk about here, which I believe to have a lot of correlation to this idea called Seder slash mindfulness within doing whatever it is that needs to be done. When Hashem came to Avram, we know there's a fa- very famous claw. There's a rule. Maisa avais simen right? Some things that happen to our grandparents sort of trickle down, like genetically, to the children. Avram Avinu was a person who excelled in chesed, in caring for other people. One of the pieces within Avram Avinu's development, if we may call it as much, was the fact that Avram was going to feel not just for a guy who's walking in the desert and who needs a drink, not just for a person who needs a place to sleep, but for thousands or tens of thousands of people that were about to be destroyed. Avram Avinu had to get his own emotions through the process of coming to the realization that all of these people were about to be destroyed. And Hashem turns to him and he says, I know that you're going to feel something. The purpose of you feeling this is not about the result where you're going to change my mind. 
The purpose of you going through this exercise is that you will develop your own emotion to what you're feeling. I'll, I'll try to like think through like how to say this. Like I'm a forensic accountant, right? It's almost like you could go through school for forensic accounting and then you could have a forensic accounting engagement. Now you can go through a whole engagement where you put in hundreds or thousands of hours and then at the end of the whole thing, the case never makes it to trial or never makes it to Besden. You're like, that was such a waste. It was a brothel of Atal. Like, why did I have to go through that whole thing? I was so stupid. No, you did. Why? Because now you're a better forensic accountant. Because you've just gone through the entire exercise of what it means to build a case, tell a story, put together the exhibits, like create your report. It's a thousand pages and no one's going to see it. But the purpose is to go through that and you now became a better forensic accountant. Avram Avinu was Av Hamayn Gayim. He was the person who was going to trickle down his genes to various people. Him working through his emotions allows us, his children, to feel things now today because of what he felt back in those days. But it wasn't just that he had to feel for them. He also had to experience depression, disappointment, like, Hashem, I daven for this. What happened? How many people today, they say that? Like, but Hashem, I daven for Hashem. Hashem, I daven for Hashem. Hashem. Yeah, you did. You know who else also daven for 10,000 people not to die? And Hashem did not really respond the way he wanted to? Your grandfather. It's in our genetic code that Hashem doesn't always just say, yes, yes, yes. Hashem sometimes says no. And we had to feel that. It had to become a part of us. Which is why Avram Avinu, when he starts the process, he doesn't start the process and then say to himself, okay, Hashem, why are you telling this to me? So I should be disappointed? Okay, fine, go destroy them. Do whatever you want. He says, okay, what if there were 50 people? And he has a cheshman, because there's five different cities, 10 people per city, fine. So then Hashem says to him, if there were 50, I wouldn't destroy. But unfortunately, there's not 50. Okay, what if there were 45? At that point, Hashem, no. So he should have hopped. Okay, there's really not. <laughs> Let me check out here. Thank you very much for coming. Have a nice day. Go destroy them. He doesn't do that. He goes through the process because he recognizes that this challenge in his life is actually fulfilling a purpose. There's a purpose, which is why Avram Avinu, if you would check his Google calendar, right? He was a busy man. He had a lot of chesed to do. He didn't say, this is a waste of my time. You know what I should do right now? Let me go find some guy walking on the sand who needs slippers, who needs, you know, a massage, who needs me to go shecht an animal for him, who needs a drink. He said, no, that guy needs to wait right now because what I'm doing right now is actually very, very important for myself and for my children and for their children. He lived in the moment that was created for him, even though he was experiencing disappointment. And he was like, this disappointment is important for me. So if you say to me, how do I stack up my day? This meeting is running long and this meeting needs to run long even though it's a disappointing meeting, because it's a part of the process that I have to go through. And then he passed that down to us. Now, I just saw a very interesting Teres Avram, it's a safer, where he says that Avram Avinu unwittingly, or like without maybe knowing this, or maybe he knew this, but we now see this side of the story, that Avram Avinu actually uncovered a secret. And if you read the story in its simple sense, with like a negative eye, you look at the story and you say, so it was a very bad story. Hashem said, I'm going to destroy. Avram Avinu was pleading and pleading and pleading and everything that he was pleading for, Hashem said, no. And then 
Hashem destroyed. So there was nothing positive that came out of this story. The Torah Avram says that's not true. Avram Avinu uncovered a secret and he revealed to us the secret that 10 righteous people can save an entire generation. And he says years later, when Klai Yisrael became mostly misyavnim, when they mostly became assimilated, the Chashmanayim, they were looking for a zchus. And they said, wait a minute, if 10 of us will, will do the shame Shemayim, then we will have like supernatural powers to be able to overcome this gezera, the Chashmanayim tapped into this story of Avram Avinu, and they said, "What L'shem Shemayim? Everybody, burn your smartphones. We're just we're just acting totally L'shem Shemayim." And that schus of the Chashmanayim wasn't just Chashmanayim; it was ten. He makes a Chashman. There was ten individuals who lived to the level of what Sedaim could have used as a schus. And they were the ones that saved Kal Yisrael during the second bias. You don't think about it that way. Because you think it was just a negative story. It's terrible. Arvin's negotiating and nothing came out of the whole thing. No, it wasn't that he was negotiating. He was, he was living in the moment and gleaning out information that was being passed down to so many of us. A lot of times we think, like, there's no purpose to this or it's not how I wanted it. I think, like, many people live almost like a sheltered life. They don't want to experience or they don't want their children to experience any negativity in the world. But having the exposure sometimes lends itself to gvura, to greatness from the person, but also from elements within the story that sort of present itself over there. So that's, that's that. There was once a girl that came to talk to me, and this girl was struggling with keeping Shabbos. So she told me that she has a huge exam coming up like on Monday, and she said to me, this Shabbos, I'm keeping Shabbos as a spouse that I should pass this exam. So I didn't like this conversation <laughs> too much, right? And so she was like, it, it's going to work, right? I was like, I, I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not, I'm not a Navi. I can't tell you. And I definitely would tell you to study for the exam. Okay, don't bank on, don't bank on this. So she said, okay, but I'm, I'm going to do it. So I said, how long has it been since you kept Shabbos? So she said it was, it was a number of years. Yes. They said, okay, if you're going to keep Shabbos, then you have to keep Shabbos. You can't just sleep through Shabbos. You can't just like put your phone on the side. Like if you're going to keep Shabbos, like real Shabbos, like you're singing Zmiris, like you're, you're by the, you're with your family. Like you can't check out. You can't just go into a coma for 25 hours. So she said, okay, you got a deal. She's like, am I going to pass the exam? I "I got no idea. Okay. Make sure you study and don't study on Shabbos. Make sure you really, you know, okay. Anyways, she goes through Shabbos. She sends me a message after Shabbos. Awesome Shabbos. Like, best Shabbos of my life. I just had an amazing Shabbos. I was like, okay, that's amazing. That's great. Um, good luck with your exam. Make sure that you study so that you pass your exam. Comes Monday. She takes her exam. She sends me a message. She says, I got to be honest with you. I don't think I did very well by this exam. I started the exam. I don't know what was flying. I can't tell you if I passed or failed. All right. Like Wednesday or Thursday, she says, I need to come talk to you. So I said, fine, come on over. She comes over, she sits down, and she says, okay, I got back the exam, and I, I, I failed. <laughs> what does this mean? Like, what does this mean within the story? Like, I failed the exam. I thought, listen, I told you from the beginning, I can't promise you if you're going to pass or fail. But one thing I could tell you is you passed. Why? Because for the first time in many years, you actually felt 
you lived in the moment of Shabbos and you know what it means, the Geshmak and the beauty of Shabbos. If you did it for some other reason, I can't tell you. But the fact of the matter is that you lived, you had Seder, you had order, you had your Zmiris, you had your family, you made Kiddush, you heard Kiddush, whatever. You went through an experience of Shabbos that is something good that sort of comes out of this, of this episode. Many people, we look like, no, no, it has to be perfectly good. And if it's not perfectly good, then no, sometimes even within the bad, there's so much that's gleaned out of this, which is so important. Two more things I want to just say here, which I think tied to this idea, which I think are really important. Number one is, I just had a conference with many of our Berkowitz's Tamida. And it was like a 48-hour conference where there was so much that was being sheared and shiurim and all this different stuff that came out of there. And our Berkowitz spoke and he, he shared with us his Talmidim. Many of them are all over the world doing you know, incredible things. He shared with us a thought as to his perspective of a Rebbe towards his Talmidim. And he said, you know, when you're sitting and you're learning in Kailo, so your, your day basically consists of eight hours of learning. And when you leave Kailo, you very oftentimes you leave that behind. You know, you don't have those eight, 10, 12, 15 hours a day of learning. You go into the workforce. Many of his Talmudim are doing Kirv Kroivim, Rechaikim, Rebeim, counseling, working with children, NCSY. I mean, there's a million things that his Talmudim are doing. And many people feel like I'm no longer learning to the level that I was learning before. And if there's a woman who's listening to this, whose husband maybe left Kylo and she's feeling that feeling of like, oh, I supported my husband when he was learning in Kylo. He's not learning in Kylo anymore. Listen to what he said. He said, there is learning Tyra. And there's another level called living Tyra. He said, I view my Talmidim that when you were in my Kailal, you were learning Taira. And when you left the Kailal, you started living Taira. He says, when you're sitting with a couple, or you're sitting with a kid who's not from, or any of the other stuff that you're doing, or even when you're just going to work, why are you doing what you're doing? You're doing it because you enjoy work? Or you're doing it because you have to support your family, you have to be a good husband. You have to be respectable. You drive your kid to yeshiva. Why did you drive him to yeshiva? It's a, moti- it's a chore. But if you lived in the moment and you said to yourself, what am I doing right now? Let me be mindful about what I'm doing right now. What I'm, this, is, this is like, <laughs> this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. I'm taking my child to yeshiva. That's, that's kedusha. That's living Torah. You're sitting in traffic in Lakewood on the nine. Don't go nine to nine, whatever, right? You're sitting there and you're honking your horn. And you're just like, well, this is, what am I doing with my life? What do you mean what you're doing with your life? You're living 12 different sugyas right now as a woman who never, you don't know the sugyas. You're sitting there in traffic. You're being Makayim so many things. You're, you're going to work. You're, you say a nice word to somebody. There's like a million things. You look at somebody. And you judge that, right? All the things that we talk about, you have the opportunity to now live it in a real setting with real, real tests. So he said, as a Rebbe, 
I can't convey to you how proud I am that so many of my Talmidim, they were mafsek for 10 years, 20 years from living Tyra. Forget learning Tyra. Don't forget learning Tyra because it's better than everything. But the, you didn't stop living Tyra. But most of us don't think about that. We think like, I'm so busy all day, running around. My spouse is nagging me. I don't have a second for anything. I, didn't, I need some inspiration in my life. Right, so you put on like a song and dance around your house. You're like, okay, well, thank you, Hashem. I love you, Hashem. Maishi is a big tzaddik, right? You put on all these songs and you're like, so excited, and then you're like, but I have no ruchnius. It's not true. You have ruchnius in every single thing that you do every single day. You just have to stop for just one second and just just feel that. I once I once got a, a haircut in Eretz Yisrael. A haircut. You don't even wear a yarmulke during a haircut. And the guy turned to me and he said. Do you have any idea how many mitzvahs I say and lois I say the you're being Mikhaim right now? I said, what are you talking? I'm getting a haircut. The guy said, no, you don't have. Right? It says you're not allowed to cut your 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 beard with you're not cutting your beard. It says you're getting a haircut, it's it's kosher, right? I'm using shaver, this is kosher, the yosher. You don't have to worry, right? He went through the whole thing, and said, then when you pay me. It's beyond my titan's chara. You have to pay somebody after they do a job. He says, you're being Mikhaim, it's a Sade Deresa, beyond my titan's chara. He went through, I think he came with like 13 or 14 things. I was like, I wonder if he tells this to everybody. I was like, this barber, this guy is like full of Kedusha, right? He's sitting there mindful in a real way that like, well, no, you think I'm just giving out haircuts here? I'm not, I'm not one of these guys who's like yentering and telling you about the Yankees, whatever. I'm actually living in the moment, and this moment is, is just jam-packed with Kedusha. But one of the guys at the, at the seminar, he said that he was on a job site, and the guy was putting in a, um, a kitchen. And when the guy came in, the owner of the house came in to see the kitchen, the guy was, like, putting in the oven, and he, he says, the covered Shabbos Kodesh. And the guy said, what did you say? He said, L'Kavid Shabbos Kodesh. He said, do you realize you're going to be baking challahs in this oven for Shabbos? You're going to be cooking for Shabbos. That's Oinig Shabbos. He says, you realize all the things are being mekayim with this kitchen? And I have a hand in this kitchen? It's, it's mind-boggling. We don't think about it. Because when we're sitting on a job site or we're sitting in our office, we're thinking, there's no Kedusha here. Kedusha's out there. Kedusha's in the base medrash. Kedusha's on Torah anytime. Yeah. There is all that Kedusha. There's all those hours and hours of learning and, and, and davening. And then there's also Kedusha sitting at your desk. There's a living Tyra. When you have no Seder, because your brain is on the next task, the next task, but it's not actually living within the moment that you're living, then you just forget all of this. You're just like, I don't know, what do I do? I'm an accountant. I'm a lawyer. My, my boss is bossy. It's a terrible day, a terrible life. Whereas even a barber who's sitting there with a guy with no yarmulke on is saying to him, you realize how many things you're being right now at this moment? You didn't even think about it. It's a fascinating idea of living in the moment of being mindful. And the last idea that I want to share on this topic, and then anyone who's not on Zoom will kick them off and we'll have a little roundtable discussion. And anybody who is on Zoom will allow you to unmute yourself. The last idea is something that struck me over the last few days. The concept of not just Seder, but Seder Hadvarim. I'm going to speak about one specific concept, which I believe to be so true. Something that I think people have a hard time emotionally um, internalizing. From a, an intellectual standpoint, it's easy to remember this, but from a practical 
standpoint, your emotions will oftentimes block you. The Seder Hadvarim of how you go about getting things done. I'm going to give you an example, okay? When it, I'm going to talk about marriage specifically. And if you're not married, ashrechem, because this is something that will take you a long time to internalize, okay? And if you are married, okay, this is a journey that I hope every person who's listening to this who is married is able to start going down this path of, of trying to change your marriage with this one nakuda. Most people, when there's something about their spouse that irks them, they complain. And I'm sure you've heard me say a million times like what those complaints mean. It just means I want to be close to you. Whatever. We're not even going to focus on that right now. But they, they focus on the fact that their spouse needs to change something. And then they fetch about it. They complain about it. They say, oh, here you go again. Or you're getting up late again. Or how many times do I have to tell you? Or you put away your phone? Right? That's what they do. And they're like, I don't understand why it's not working. He's not listening. He's not responsive. Or vice versa. When I think men, I don't want to stereotype but Whatever. Let's not get into that. Okay? <laughs> but <laughs> let's, not, let's not get gender specific right now. Okay? But people try, try to change the other person and try to like complain and fetch and, and get your point across. Like, hello, don't you hop? Like, you're ignoring me. You're not giving me attention. Like, I, I don't understand. So I want to share with you a story. It goes back many years. I won't say who this happened with, like whose house this was in. But suffice it to say that this person has an amazing marriage. So my wife and I went to visit a certain, certain daughter, okay? And we came to his house. We, we, it was like, I think it was like, 11 o'clock at night, and his wife was serving himself, okay? Don't try this at home, by the way. Your husband has to want to be the type that wants to eat at all. But this, this is a man who, he eats late at night, he's very busy all day, so he sits down, and he says, okay, sit down, I'll talk to you. His wife puts down supper, there's a piece of meat, and then there's like, um, I forget what it's called, like the grass, what's it called? Not alfalfa. Alfalfa? Alfalfa. The grass, you know, it looks like grass, Okay. So his wife puts down like a piece of meat and the grass. And he says, he says to her, oh, I, I see I'm eating the meat and I'm eating what the meat ate, the grass, okay? That was his comment. Oh, I see I'm eating the meat and I'm eating what the, what the meat ate, the, the grass. So my wife and I were like, like looking at each other like, huh? Like, you know, we were newlyweds and his wife, burst out laughing she thought it was the funniest thing she's like because <laughs> the cow eats the grass that's so funny and she walks out of the room okay and we were like a little bit like surprised like whoa that comment i think many men would say that comment to their wife like oh you're giving me the grass a lot of women would take that personally and by him it was the funniest thing his wife like in the kitchen like ah the meat and what the what the meat she was laughing in the kitchen and we were still like a little uncomfortable. Like, what? Why did he make that comment? Like, it was a little bit insensitive. Like, you'd imagine somebody married 30, 50, 100 years, whatever it is, like, they'd be so sensitive to their wife, what they're feeling. And they would say, oh, Shefala, wow, what a supper. <laughs> Amazing, right? It, that wasn't his comment. It was like, a, it was a funny comment. It was only years later when we were discussing this story, my wife and I, that we were saying how there's such a depth to this story. It seems like a stupid story, but it's not. There's a lot of depth to the story. There's a real Seder Hadvarim when it comes to fetching and complaining and trying to get your needs met when it comes to a relationship. The first, first thing is that there is a relationship, a real relationship. Like 
where you feel the respect in your bones, when it's tangible, when the kesher is there, when, the, when, when two people are really, really, not infatuated, but really respectful, mindful. I could say the word love, says it in Tyra, okay? And people like really love each other. When there's like a real marriage, on top of that, a person can say like, like, oh, you're not going to wear that, right? Or they can make a comment. I'm not going to, don't, don't, don't quote me here, okay? Like they can make a comment. They could say something. And the other person knows that it is packaged in love. It's coming from somewhere. It's just a joke. He's not really saying something. We always say, it says, you should give rebuke, you should give criticism. When? Only if it will be received. When will it be received? If it's loaded with, like, I love you so much. Don't do that. Because I, I love you. You know I'm saying this because I love you. When it's coming from the end, the person really feels it, then it's there. But people don't have enough patience. We have to go back to the other media. People oftentimes don't have enough patience. They don't have enough patience to actually build the real, true feeling of that relationship. They come into a marriage trying to change the other person through complaints or put that down or even just looks or whatever the case may be. And when they do that, they don't realize that little things, little things, take the baby. Whoa, like your whole night is over. That tone, that voice, that criticism, put down your phone. That little nothing, it, it, it's a blow up because the person already feels disrespected. This solidified it for them. You really don't respect me. Nobody talks to their husband like that or vice versa. It's, it's, it's like the Makabapatish. It's the piece on top of the piece. So how do you change a marriage? The answer is Seder Hadvarim. What comes first? What is, your only for, what is your only focus right now to build a marriage? Once the marriage is built, 80% of these complaints, these arguments, which are shockingly idiotic, they go away. They stop arguing because there was really nothing here to actually argue or complain about. And then once that's gone, you want to turn to your spouse and say like, hey, you know, like maybe we should get up earlier tomorrow or, you know. Your spouse is like, oh, yeah, oh, great idea. I could hear that. They can listen to you. They can hear you because they know that you actually truly care about them and respect them. This is wrapping up this concept of Seder. Seder, we started off saying that it's just being organized. And it's far from that. It's a mida. Midos are not just on the external, as Shimi Epstein pointed out to us many times. Midos are internal. It's how you develop yourself on the inside. And a part of it is not just being organized. It's about knowing that everything has a time and a place, when that place is, what comes first, what comes second, and living within the moment to say, like, I have this, I have nothing after this, I have nothing before this. I'm living right now. And a person who does that actually develops good meter. People who don't have a hard time with other things in their life because their meter is never actually fully developed. We're going to stop here for Torah anytime. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.